I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 123 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times News and Politics Podcast. This week, I'm joined by our occasional co-host, Simone Alisea from KNKX. Hey, Simone. Hey, Dan. This week, we're going to talk to Seattle Times criminal justice reporter Steve Militich about his recent story called A Police Officer's Lie, A Seattle Man's Suicide. Family and friends learn what really happened. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks for inviting me. Steve, let's start with the basics here. So in May 2018, a man named Porter Feller was involved in a fender bender car accident, and he drove away. One of the cops who ended up looking for him after that wound up talking to a friend of Feller's and told that friend that Feller had hit a woman and that the woman was in critical condition, that she might die. Feller couldn't remember the accident completely, and five days uh, after he heard from that friend, he took his own life. So those are the, the upsetting, you know, very basic pieces of this story. But you went really deep on this story. Take us back to the beginning of your reporting. How did you first hear about it? Well, I was uh, provided a, a copy of an uh, uh, internal investigation conducted by the Seattle Police Department on this case, uh, what, what they call a closed case summary, that uh, outlined you know, pretty much what you just described, uh, those basic facts. What was missing from that report, and, and just because it was a summary, so it didn't go into you know, names and, and all the details. Uh, so I didn't have the name of, of uh, Porter Feller's name at that point. I didn't have the name of the officer. Uh, I knew uh, that friends of his had been brought into this ruse used by the police officer, but I also didn't have their name. So I had the, you know, the basic uh, nuts and bolts of the stories, but not the human element. You wrote an original story that went in the newspaper that, that basically laid out those basic facts that were in the summary and you asked the police department about it. And that was sort of the first bite at the apple, correct? Yes, and I think that what jumped out at everybody, and I used this in my you know, opening paragraph of the story, was you know, the, uh, this officer told uh, his partner that he, you know, he was going to use a ruse, and he said it will uh, be a lie, but it will be fun. And I think that kind of became the, the driving uh, narrative of that story. So even just those details are pretty shocking. Yeah, you know that's that that's a that's a story in and of itself. But but you know what what was missing from that you didn't know at that time that that you know you kind of wanted to learn more about. Well, start start with Porter Feller. I wanted to know more about him, who he was, how he got it. You know this into this position where he took his own life. Uh, you know, even though there, the officer had used this ruse, there you know there had to be a deeper story there about him. Uh, you know, I wanted to know about his friends, and, and especially the, you know, the, the ones that were brought into this uh, unwittingly. Porter Feller's friends. Porter Feller's friends, yeah. yes. I wanted to know more about them, uh, you know, just the history. Uh, so you know, I was kind of um, um, at loss, and then the day the story ran, my phone rang, and uh, Porter's mother Actually, it was an email. I'm sorry, email. And uh, I got an email from her saying, thank you for the story. Uh, I'm his mother. And it kind of went from there. And now you, uh, it took a while to do uh, the reporting. I should say that, you know, we we thought to have you on this week because this past Sunday, you had a big story in the paper. Simone mentioned it, but but you didn't get there right away. I think the first follow-up was a story about um, how police chief Carmen Best responded you you asked 
what the police department was doing about it. Right. I think it was a step-by-step process. And one of the things I had to do was get records and file a public disclosure request so I could find out the name of the officer. Uh, I wanted to see the police chief's disciplinary action report where she spells out her reasons for discipline. In this case, she had suspended the officer for six days, but I didn't know, you know, her, her thought process. So it, there was you know, two paths here. One was to start talking to family and friends and gather information and then and get these records re- requests uh, rolling. And then when I got the disciplinary report, I was able to write a story saying that Chief Best, Carmen Best, accepted the basic premise uh, of the internal investigation that there were violations of policy uh, you know, dealing with professional conduct and discretion. Um, but she watered down some of the findings of the Office of Police Accountability, which did the investigation. The director of that unit, who is a civilian, had used some pretty strong language. Uh, he said that the officer's conduct shocked the conscience, that, uh, that his uh, ruse had contributed to the death, uh, of um, uh, Porter Feller. Chief Best chose to say that that was speculative and didn't use adopt all his language. She also chose discipline that was at the lower end of the recommended, recommended range of, uh, I believe it was uh, five to 15 days off uh, from, from her staff. And she chose six at the lower end. So that, that was the gist of that story. Were you able to um, talk with anyone at the police department to figure out why Chief Best made that decision um, to, to sort of, um, I, I don't know, I guess, deviate from a little bit from, from the OPA investigation? No. Well, Chief Best, uh, I asked to, you know, to interview her and uh, they did not make her available. I think part of that goes to the fact that there can be appeals in these cases, an ongoing uh, review and so she has to take into consideration how much she wants to say. It, you know, it's at her discretion. The department pretty much limited to, to, to general comments about the fact that you know this was a tragedy. You know, boilerplate type answers, but didn't, they did not provide any um, detailed analysis of, of her uh, disciplinary decision. So that's kind of the police response to this. But but you mentioned you know one of the things you really wanted to know, and you and you started reporting. Uh, shortly after you wrote your first story was about who, who Porter Fellow was. So tell us who he was. What'd you learn? What'd you find out about him? Well, he's a 40-year-old man um, who was born um, in Spokane um, and moved uh, over to the first Tacoma and then came to Seattle uh, after a few years. And he was a bit of a character. Uh, he had various jobs. He was a glassblower. Uh, he, he worked as a performance artist at the parties and festivals, uh, performing as a, you know, a clown at times and, and other things, odd jobs. He was the kind of person that uh, one, one of his friends described him at an after-hours party at a warehouse where the roof was leaking because during a rainstorm. And the DJ, in order to keep everybody dancing, a porter stood next to him with an umbrella uh, the whole time and you know, kind of danced and ke- kept things moving. I, think, I thought that, that was a great description from one of his friends of his personality. What were you able to start to piece together about how um, he came to be in this situation uh, where this ruse was applied um, after this accident? Well, he, he left the scene of the accident. Uh, you know, that was a mistake. Um, and the police traced the license plate uh, that had been uh, photographed by the, one of the other drivers 
uh, to an address. Uh, it wasn't his address. It was the address of a friend of his, uh, Maggie Parks, a close friend. He used that address as kind of a mail drop and to register his car uh, because he, he would bounce around and live in different places. So he goes off. The police show up at that address and uh, go to the door and, and interview Maggie Parks and tell her this story that uh, they're looking for him and it's serious because somebody's been left critically injured and, and might not live. And, uh, you know, that set in motion um, several days of angst uh, on his part. Initially, he, he, he did not think that he could have done this. But then it started to play in, in his mind that maybe he hit a pedestrian. And then, and then his friends were saying, you've got to deal with this. We've got to get an attorney. And, and, and on top of that, you know, he had issues over the years. You know, his mother uh, said that he may have had depression. Uh, there had been some past suicidal uh, thoughts. Uh, so what you had is his history coinciding with this officer's ruse. And you know, the, the consequences were, were tragic. Right. And I think your story mentioned that, uh, you know, the the friend uh, who spoke with the police, you know, was worried about him, uh, you know, sort of advised him, you need to get an attorney. This is serious. You know, uh, someone you hit is in critical condition. And he was saying, well, I, I don't totally remember uh, every the accident. So, well, maybe I did hit someone. And, um, and, and another friend sort of, you said, read him the right act in terms of, you know, hey, buddy, you have to, you know, uh, you know, sort of clean up and, and make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Look what happened. And so all of those things sort of started to weigh, weigh in, it seemed like. Yes. And, and Maggie Parks was kind of conducting her own investigation to find out what was going on. And, and she kept striking out, uh, looking at the official websites for any 911 calls or anything suggesting that had happened. But, you know, these are average citizens. I mean, they're not knowledgeable about exactly how to find these things. Right. You would think, you know, I think you wrote in your story that uh, she sort of Googled, you know, person critically injured, you know, in in hit and run in Seattle on this date, you know, which is what you would do if you heard about this and and didn't see anything when that was confusing. But um, it never occurred to her that this could have just been a a straight up lie. And, And you also did some reporting on, you know, what the this officer was his thinking apparently in and his part what his partner was thinking when this was going on you got video of them sort of walking around the neighborhood looking for her home or for this address and talking about it the the case and then walking up to the door and you you can go on to cltimes.com and you can watch this it's you know if you want to. <laughs> it's, but, it's quite striking. Yeah. It's really, really striking to, to see. Yeah, to watch all the human reactions. You know, when Maggie was doing this research, she was sophisticated enough to have, have learned somewhere along the line, sometimes the police don't release a lot of information because they don't want to let the suspect know what they know. So when she didn't find anything, she thought, well, geez, maybe they're keeping it under wraps. So everything made sense in her head that this could be real. Now, as far as the officer's approach to it, uh, it was very casual. He and uh, his partner uh, walked around, the, looking. they got a little lost looking for the address, and they were talking about some of the surroundings, and he was mentioning he put a barbecue pit, you know, in this particular backyard, and there was no urgency or seriousness. And then he talks about he's going to use a ruse on, uh, on, on a porter, he, does, he can't quite hear in the conversation exactly what he's thinking, but he, he's going to say something to Porter to try to 
draw something out of him that will be helpful to, to, to connecting him to this hit and run. Well, when they get to the door, he's not there. And so he kind of audibles and he comes up with this injury, serious injury story in order to get Maggie Parks to, to be cooperative. And then um, when they leave the scene, his partner says, did I hear you right before when we were uh, talking about this and when we got the uh, instructions to come here that this, you know, was that there were no injuries? Maybe I heard wrong. And he said, oh, you know, that was just a ruse. That's all it was. You know, one of the questions I had when I was reading the story was was how often are officers using uh, this kind of and tactic? And is it allowed? Right. Is it allowed? And I'm thinking particularly in a case like this, you know, where the actual event was a minor fender bender, right? Was was a relatively kind of a minor thing. Is this kind of thing common? It's not common, but it's used periodically. And they are allowed to use ruses. I think there's been court decisions upholding them, um, you know, as long as they stay within certain bounds. I think the training geared around the term shocked common sense or shocked the sense of fairness uh, in dealing with people, you know, that to be balanced. This, you know, this particular hit and run was a misdemeanor with no injuries. So it, it clearly didn't call for something of this magnitude. You know, there, there have been like felony cases, of, you know, serious assaults. I, I think there was a Seattle police case where a detective took photographs of somebody in a hospital bed that were, that were um, concocted. You know, they put, you know, somebody in a bed and took pictures and they showed it to another, uh, to a suspect, to another suspect while they were looking for the main suspect. And, you know, in that case, the court, you know, upheld the ruse. Um, it was a felony, injuries, it was, you know, carefully thought out. This one involving Porter um, was kind of on the fly, uh, you know, with a lack of, you know, you know, clear thought and judgment. Right. And, and your story went into sort of, you know, how this affected people and the reactions, obviously the main sort of uh, re- result. Um, but, but also, you know, you can even see in the video that Maggie Parks, she holds up her hand to show that it's shaking when the police officer tells her this lie. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, things kind of spiraled from there where um, before taking his own life, um, <laughs> Porter Feller, um, you know, left notes and money and belongings for his friends, which and then did take his own life by injecting himself uh, with drugs and um, what that was like for his friends and family. And sort of to bring it back to his mother, uh, one of the sort of incredible things about the story is how she found out. She was the one who discovered what had actually happened. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't you or it wasn't um, uh, uh, Maggie Parks. It it was his mom. And how did that happen? About a month after uh, Porter took his own life, uh, a a letter from uh, the insurance carrier for one of the other drivers was sent uh, to Maggie Park's address, and then it was passed to his mother. And the letter asked Porter to provide information on his insurance. So his mother uh, called um, uh, State Farm, the, the insurance carrier, and talked to an agent and to tell him that he was deceased and, and what had happened. And then she asked about the, uh, the accident, and the agent told her that 
he had backed into one car that had been pushed into another, but it was pretty minor. Nobody had been hurt. You know, basically a fender bender. Her first reaction was, thank God nobody was hurt. And then she was furious when she became aware uh, that this was not uh, the description uh, that the police officer had given. Right. And then I think you mentioned in the story that it was Maggie Parks who filed the OPA complaint that led to that internal investigation. And she said, you know, I want to you know, she had felt horrible. She had gone to the the memorial or the funeral service uh, for her friend, sort of worried about did she somehow contribute to his death because she was the one who had called who called him, him in the first place, right the after first the police place came and relayed that information. And then here she is. She finds out it was it was she was lied to, and she filed that OPA complaint. Yeah, I mean, prior to filing the complaint. She filed a request for the uh, body camera video of, of the officers, which cl- cleared up in her head exactly what, you know, what was said. It confirmed that the officer had misled her. She had been terribly uh, concerned that she mis- misunderstood him back at their original conversation. Um, and when she went to the uh, memorial service, she wore a hat to kind of cover her face. She wouldn't talk to people. So she was quite distraught about this. Uh, and then the, the, the State Farm information and the body camera video cl- you know, cleared the air, and at that point she filed the complaint. So we talked about you know, the use of ruses in police work and, and how common it is, but this case actually resulted in changes in the way the Seattle Police Department trains around this kind of thing, right? What, what, what changed? The uh, Office of... Police Accountability recommended that they look at retraining officers about ruses as a result of this case. And in 2019, officers, detective, and some other people in the department all received training on you know what is a proper ruse, what is an improper ruse, uh, and uh, so you know that was one of the lasting uh, things about this case that I, th- I think was heartening to to uh, Porter's mother that, that that happened. The other change, and we, we didn't get to it earlier, was that the medical examiner originally ruled this case to be um, uh, accidental uh, death due to a combination of uh, methamphetamine, heroin, and cocaine um, uh, intoxication and overdose. And when I started my reporting and looked at what you know, Dan mentioned a few minutes ago about... Um, him leaving money for people and talking about suicide and all the circumstances. You know, I, I, I spoke to the medical examiner and said, you know, are you sure of this uh, ruling? And the initial answer was, we stand by our decision. And then a couple of days later, they said, no, we're changing it to suicide. We, we've reevaluated. It was based on the, the, their analysis of the drug levels in his blood. Now, they didn't go into all the details. But they said as a result of that, they are now going to use that analysis and protocol in all these type of cases in hopes of, of getting more accurate uh, rulings in the future. So so the analysis they're using is is shifting a little bit? Yes. Interesting. I, I guess I'm – this kind of stuff uh, has, has happened before, I presume. I, I guess I'm just it, – it is – Well, it raises some questions about, yeah, like how they how they've – ruled on on similar cases not obviously involving a ruse but similar sort of uh, overdose cases before and whether there may have been other cases that were that that were maybe were suicide and i realize it could be hard to tell sometimes but 
Yeah, they said they were confident in the pathologist who, who did this uh, autopsy, and they, I assume, looked at some of that. Uh, and, and I would also assume they would go back and look at some old cases, although they didn't specifically say that. Um, but it clearly made them, you know, reevaluate and, uh, how, you know, going forward and how they're going to uh, interpret uh, certain drug levels. Also, uh, just to go back to the police department, uh, you mentioned that, you know, some new training was done or some retraining. Chief Best, her discipline was within the range. It was at the lower end of the range recommended by the OPA, but it was within the range. But can you put for context, you know, this isn't the first um, disciplinary determination or decision that um, that she has made. Uh, is, has there been a pattern in the way that she's dealt with these cases? Anything to know about sort of how uh, Chief Best you know, uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin's administration, the police department in general, is is handling discipline. Well, start off within this case that uh, the officer Matthew Kirby had a prior disciplinary matter that had been resolved just uh, weeks earlier. Uh, he had been suspended for two days for his uh, uh, behavior during the questioning of a burglary suspect. Uh, he had used very coarse language, and he had escalated the situation to the point he had to, to uh, use a punch to get a person under control. And, and the department said that he had you know, basically used bad judgment. So Chief Best you know, did have that in, you know, in, in mind when she uh, handed down her discipline. And, and it's debatable whether you know, six days on the next one was appropriate. And I guess that each one of these cases uh, where there's controversy, there's a certain amount of debate. Now, Chief Best has had, you know, cases where she's fired some officers under difficult circumstances, two officers who were involved in a controversial shooting uh, incident, um, which they shot at a moving car. And fortunately, nobody was killed, but she fired the two officers for uh, showing a bad judgment in, in using their weapons. Uh, but she's also had cases where she... Uh, took, you know, what some people viewed as light action against uh, officers. Uh, we had a case of an, of an officer who put his, uh, brought a chair and put it in front of a man's business uh, to get him to apologize for a run-in they'd had earlier in the day, and she chose to not uh, terminate him, and that, and that caused some controversy. I guess that there's no clear pattern, but the trend has been that she does not like to uh, explain her decisions, kind of leaves it to people to figure out. And, and so that's been more the trend. You know, one thing, too, though, that's sort of different about about this case is, right, we're not talking about a case of physical violence, of, of you know, a cop um, uh, punching, uh, you know, a suspect or, or of shooting somebody. Um, this is a case wherein the damage that was inflicted is is psychological and, and not necessarily easy to predict, right? It's hard to, to say, you know, certainly issues of like blame or, or of, of um, you know, did you do this on purpose or are, are so much harder to figure out in this case. But I can't help but wonder, you know, and I'm asking you as someone who speaks with police officers with with some regularity, I would never do this kind of thing to a person where I'd say that they might have killed somebody when they hadn't. Why wouldn't an officer or or wouldn't an officer have known, even if it wasn't going to cause a suicide, that, that this kind of ruse was going to cause um, some distress? Or was the distress maybe the point to, to, to you know, get, get the information they were trying to get? Well, that was clearly the point. Uh, what 
I don't think the officer fully comprehended because he originally planned to use his ruse against Porter Feller. He, he, I don't think he thought about the ramifications on somebody who was not involved, who was a third party, and, and how that person would, uh, you know, be affected by it. Um, you know, Maggie Parks says that, you know, she felt exploited and that she was used as a vehicle uh, improperly. And, and I don't think he ran all that through his mind when he told her that, especially given the, the entire kind of casual easygoing way he went about it. Yeah. And and maybe, you know, this reminds me of the way you ended your your most recent story. Maybe it's sort of a way that we can end our conversation as well is you mentioned, you know, Simone asking about sort of, you know, what was this officer thinking? And he, he, he sort of had an explanation, you know, that when he was interviewed. But, but that's exactly what um, Porter Feller's mother told you that she would like uh, at this point, you know, uh, at least in theory, at the end of your story, you closed it on her saying, basically, I wish I could just talk to this guy and find out why he did this, right? Well, when he was uh, interviewed for the internal investigation, he said he did this as a matter of public safety, that there was urgency, that he didn't feel that she had been cooperative, which the video and his own partner contradicted. Um, that really upset his mother uh, she felt that he wasn't being truthful. Um, she ended um, our interview by saying she'd like to have a five-minute conversation uh, with Matthew Kirby, the officer, and really just basically one question, tell me why. Well, thanks for your reporting, Steve, and thanks for talking with us. Thank you. That's a wrap for episode 123 of The Overcast. Thanks to Steve Militich for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Simone, for joining me to, to talk with Steve. Thanks to KNKX for having us in the studio. And uh, thanks to all of you listening. If you appreciate the local independent journalism that makes this podcast possible, consider going to seattletimes.com slash support for subscription options. We love it when you reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, Dan is at D Beekman. Steve is at Steve Militich. And I'm at SV Alisea. You can also uh, send us an email at seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. And until next week, have a cloudy day.